do anything wrong in this situation. He took a pitch in the back. He got beamed for crying out loud. We used heart attack. Managers on a major league baseball team don't make decisions. Credibility in this situation is worse than losing your job. Was it over with the Germans bomb Pearl Harbor? The castration of the major league baseball managers. We know it. Ask me about my winner. What's going on, everybody? Another edition of the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by St. Alwish's Church in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck, located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. I was set. I was ready to go off on a rant to start the show. I'm going to delay it a little bit because uh, there's some breaking news. Um, just, you know, a shock as you hear it throughout the football world that former Ohio State and current Pittsburgh Steelers quarterback Dwayne Haskins was killed in, a, in an accident today and you know obviously you know a young man you know at such a young age taken so quickly with so much potential and there was a little knock on Dwayne Haskins being the number 15 overall pick from Ohio State taken by the Washington Redskins a couple of years ago and you know from a regime that wasn't there Ron Rivera as he exists in his position with the Washington now commanders is you know, has no connection to Haskins throughout the draft. So that's why they parted ways a couple of years ago, was on the depth chart of the Pittsburgh Steelers this past year and was expected to compete for the starting quarterback job after the Steelers added Mitch Trubisky. And, you know, you just think uh, just, just such a sad, sad moment for a young man that had a lot of potential. And, you know, the expectation was, you know, the raw skills that he showed at uh, Ohio State University, obviously a, a solid place to play football. you got to have a ton of talent to be able to be on the starting football field for a program like that, the type of football they play and the expectations that exist without that univer- within that university. And, uh, you know, a man that just unfortunately doesn't get his chance. And like, like I said, just coming through the airwaves, something that's just very shocking um, Godspeed, obviously, you know, the best to anything, everybody that's close to Dwayne Haskins, um, current quarterback of the Pittsburgh Steelers, dead at the age of 24. So a lot of people are, are finishing their fantasy baseball drafts as we're getting set to a new season. And listen, my, my expectations for my own personal team, and I generally don't like to break down individual squads, but I, I feel like there is a little bit of a divide from what the gurus expect within, let's say, we'll use CBS as an example. Um, ESPN has their own, obviously Yahoo. Anybody, any place that you you draft your fantasy baseball teams has got a team of people that are going to evaluate your, your said drafts. Now, listen, my track record in this particular league is not necessarily good. So I'd actually side with the gurus saying, listen, your teams are pretty shitty. They've been for a long time. How would I have any particular faith in a given team that you drafted? Now, I want to go over a couple points when we're talking about this individual team because personally, I, I think I think I filled a ton of holes. Now, every format to every, every squad is different. This particular league... I had two keepers that you could take from rounds 10 on. And I, and I lucked out by being able to draft Shohei Otani and Wander Franco 
last year in the 10th and the 12th round, which puts me, put me in a great position to be able to keep those two players. I, I can't imagine too many other teams in, in this particular league or in similar situations would have been able to take two better players. So having the number one overall pick, you know, you'd be a little silly if you didn't take Juan Soto. I don't think there's any knock on taking Juan Soto with the number one overall pick. Outfielder, Washington Nationals, probably the player that from a point and a fantasy value has the potential to score the most points of anybody this league. Now, obviously, most snake drafts or most drafts are snake drafts. So you have the first overall pick, you go through the 10, and then the 10th gets the 11th pick, so on and so forth. And then you're down to the next pick that you get. In a 10-team league is the 20th pick. And I stumbled across this outfielder for the Los Angeles Angels by the name of Mike Trout. So already the draft's kind of off to a good start. Juan Soto, Mike Trout, and having another pick right after that, several pitchers were taken already. So I settled on Zach Wheeler, of course, pitcher for the Philadelphia Phillies. And, you know, third in the National League or second in the National League last year in a Cy Young voting, probably not a terrible pick there at number three. So you move on to pick number, what, 40 and 41. And I settled on a third baseman for the Colorado Rockies by the name of Chris Bryant. After that, I took Corey Seager, shortstop for the Texas Rangers. Now, there is a little bit of negativity here. You're talking about two players that just got paid, two players that ended up um, certainly getting huge contracts for the respective teams that they've signed, Colorado and, of course, Texas. And there's always that expectation that the player that has the contract isn't going to be the same as the player that was trying to get the contract. I can't imagine Chris Bryant going to Colorado and not hitting bombs all over the place. I can't imagine Chris Bryant not putting up offensive numbers that were similar to that of Nolan Arenado. Maybe not as high of a batting average. You're looking at a guy that could hit about 240, 250, but playing his home games in Colorado, I think the expectation is his numbers are going to increase. Corey Seager, similar situation in Texas. Uh, Hitter-friendly ballpark playing in the American League, a team that's supposed to be a little bit better. It's not the Dodgers, but the expectation is the Rangers are supposed to be pretty competitive this year. The Texas Rangers, uh, obviously, I I go back to the days of Connie Mack and $100,000 infield of Stuffy McGinnis, uh, Eddie Collins, Jack Barry, and Home Run Baker. And then the Rangers in an offseason got themselves a half a billion dollar middle infield with Corey Seager and Marcus Semien. But to, to this point, if you're, if you're following me, do you have any issues with this draft? Like I said, Soto, Trout, Wheeler, Seager, Bryant. Now move on to the next round of what? Rounds six and seven. And I end up taking Jose Abreu, the 2020 MVP of the Chicago White Sox as my first baseman. And a pick that, listen, you might not love, but I was very happy about taking Blake Snell as my second pitcher for from the San Diego Padres. So you got a staff now of Wheeler and Snell, but an offense that is kind of built. You got the two outfielders with Trout and Soto. Now you got Abreu, Bryant, Seeger. And then as you move into rounds number eight and nine, I selected Joey Votto, who 
places a corner infield position, which by the way, I have to I have to make sure that this is squared away. In this particular league, you have you know your standard players, catcher, first base, second base, shortstop, third base, three outfielders, a designated hitter, and a middle infielder and a corner infielder. So my middle infield is squared away with Franco. My corner infield is now taken care of because I've drafted Joey Votto in the eighth round. Now I take Javier Baez, shortstop but second base eligibility, with my ninth pick to kind of fill out my offensive roster. My tenth pick obviously is taken with Otani. Um, I get an 11th, my eleventh round pick right after that. I take Kyle Schwarber. So now I have an outfield of Trout, Soto, and Schwarber, and my offensive team is pretty set. My 12th pick is Wander Franco. My 13th pick, after that, I then select... Who did I end up taking with my 13th pick? Um, it's a good question. You know, off the top of my head, I don't... Oh, I, t- I took Luis Severino. So the Yankees' second starter. And if you think about it, the Yankees are expected to compete. They're expected to go out there, win 90, 95 games, maybe even more. What's their starting rotation? It's Garrett Cole and probably Luis Severino as their number two. So I'm taking a Yankees second best starter with my 13th overall pick. Tell me that I've drafted through 13 rounds a bad baseball team. Now listen, maybe a little weak to this point on starting pitchers. And over time, I ended up taking John Means and Herman Marquez and Chris Flexen. Um, As a free agent, I added John Gray, uh, David Bednar, uh, took Devin Williams, dropped him, replaced him with Robert Suarez, who doesn't look like it's such a good pick. That being said, Suarez is going to get a chance to be the closer for the San Diego Padres. So overall, I'm looking at this team, and I, I see some of the issues with the glitches that exist amongst the ra- rankings of this particular of any draft. Um, I think they're looking for depth because if you're looking, if your if your result is you're trying to say that this team has the worst set of outfielders out of anybody, which is a little bit silly because uh, I, I end up with Juan Soto, Mike Trout, and Kyle Schwarber, and you're rating that as a D-. minus. I think you got to evaluate the process in a way that you evaluate drafts. Tell me that Juan Soto, Mike Trout, and Kyle Schwarber aren't good players. Not, not even good players. Name a better outfield. If you could select anybody, you very seldom are going to get an opportunity to have both Soto and Trout in the same outfield. How do you rate that a D minus? And overall, you say your hitters. I, I spent the entire draft putting together an all-star offensive team to say that it's a D minus grade. I think it's a little bit off. And I'll go as far as this particular league. And I'll drop off of this. We'll get into some more important stuff. I, I will make this stance. If, if I don't make the playoffs at the very least in this league, I'll, I will drop out of this league forever. You're telling me that you have a, a team that is sitting there. First base, Jose Abreu. Second base, Javier Baez. Chris Bryant, Corey Seager, Wander Franco, Joey Votto. Holding your... Infield positions, including middle infield and quarter outfield. The outfield, I just told you, Swarber, Soto, Trout, Otani as your designated hitter, who, by the way, you could use in a starting rotation if you want, if you think your starters are a little weak, which, listen, you can't have everything. I went out there and focused on building a star offensive team. 
a, the D minus team that you said it was. And, you know, just looking through, hey, who, who did you suggest I could have grabbed? Key Brian Hayes? Do you want Key Brian Hayes or do you want Chris Bryant? Tell me. Kyle Hendricks. All right. Well, I could have added him to the mix, maybe at the expense of one of the other players. But Brandon Belt? You're telling me that Brandon Belt is better than Joey Votto? Joe, Joey Votto had a 938 OPS last season. Jose Abreu. You taking Jose Abreu or are you taking Brandon Belt? So I'm done with this. Wanted to focus a little bit about one of the MVP votes that existed in the National League a long time ago. And it's the 60-year anniversary of the 2022 season of the 1962 baseball season. For those that don't remember, um, coming off of 1961, which was very special in the history of baseball, Roger Maris hitting 61 home runs, uh, breaking the all-time record set by Babe Ruth, which had existed for many, many seasons. Ford Frick, the Asterix. Of course, they played 162 games that year, not 154 for the first time in the history of the sport. So a year later, expansion exists, gets put in there in the National League. So the National League adds the Mets and the Astros. The results of this season put the San Francisco Giants in a World Series. They ended up playing the Yankees seven games. A hard line drive off the bat of Willie McCovey with the Yankees clinging to one-run lead was caught by Bobby Richardson to win the World Series, second in a row from the Yankees. I'm not going to talk about that Yankee dynasty, but the Yankees from 1949 to 1964, the greatest run of a professional baseball team in the history of the sport. I'm just going to stop there. I'm not going to back up any points. I've thrown this out there, had discussions, monologues, whatever, talking about that. Um, and I'm not, I'm not set to talk about that today. So the 1962 season, um, the MVP in the National League is is pretty close. It, you're looking at some uh, some very good players. The Dodgers Willie, I'm sorry, Maury Wills, ends up getting the award. He ends up winning the MVP, and he he had his best season. Stole 100 bases, which was something that had not been done uh, since the days of Ty Cobb. He ends up for the season hitting 299. Drives in 48 runs, scores 130 runs, 208 hits, 10 triples. Leads the league, like I said, 104 stolen bases. Only caught 13 times. So he ends up winning the MVP as a shortstop of the Dodgers. Now, Mickey Mantle wins the MVP in the American League. A little less of a battle. He hit 321, led the American League in on-base percentage, slugging percentage, and walks. 30 home runs, 89 runs batted in, a war of six wins. The only other six-win players um, in the American League were Brooks Robinson at 6.1, Hank Aguirre of the Detroit Tigers uh, as a pitcher, 16-8, and 221 ERA, 1.05 whip, is worth 6.2 war, wins above replacement. So Robinson season, not as flashy offensively, so I got no issue with Mickey Mantle winning the MVP. You look on the other side, and Maury Wills would probably would not have won the National League MVP if the vote was held in this day and age when it comes to wins above replacements. He was worth six wins, the same as Tommy Davis, the late Tommy Davis, who finished third in the voting. 
Um, good season, certainly, but you're compared to the strength of your peers. If Maury Wills' season was hands down above that of the other top players in the league, then I think we'd have a different type of discussion. So Willie Mays finishes second, Tommy Davis, as I just mentioned, third, Frank Robinson fourth, Don Drysdale fifth, Henry Aaron sixth. And that's as far as I'll go with it. You know, a lot of other players had good seasons. Overall, offensively, it was a very solid season for the National League, as I'm about to tell you with some of the results of the players that season. So we established Maury Wills and his case for the MVP. We'll talk about Mays, who finished second. 304 batting average was a 999 OPS. Now, you understand, Mays and Wills are different type of players. I'm not expecting Maury Wills to have a 900 OPS. That's not fair for the type of player that he was. And it's also not fair that he should be compared, even on an individual season, to the likes of Willie Mays, who goes out there, a near 1,000 OPS, 49 home runs, which led the National League, 141 runs batted in, 130 runs scored, which was the same as what Maury Wills had, 189 hits, so Wills had more hits. They're pretty close in batting average. Tommy Davis, the late Tommy Davis, who was the inspiration of me pulling this MVP voting up, finishes third that year, has his best season, leads the National League in batting average with a 346 average, Leads the National League and runs batted in with 153 and hits with 230. 910 OPS. They say it's worth six wins above replacement. Mays, by the way, because he's Willie Mays and he provides all those intangibles and is as fundamentally sound as a defensive player as he is, is worth from, from assist to range factor to catching balls in center field. Mays led the National League in war with 10.5. Nobody in 1962 knows what the hell war is. So they're, they're thinking, what, are we talking about Korea here? Are we talking about the, you know, the results of the, 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 the Civil War? Are we talking about World War I, World War II? Are we talking about Vietnam? What does war mean in baseball in 1962? Nobody knows. But we know now that Willie Mays is worth 10.5 wins above replacement well above anybody in an, in the National League. So if the MVP vote is held today, because of that, Willie Mays probably wins. Great season, like I said, 9.99 OPS, leads the league in home runs with 49, leads the league with in war. Like I said, nobody in 1962 knows what the hell war is not in 1962. So Tommy Davis leads the league in batting average, runs batted in, and hits. And then there's Frank Robinson. Frank Robinson, oh, was damn near short of the Triple Crown. E even though he falls a little short in home runs, but from a triple stash standpoint, almost led the league in batting average, on base, and slugging. Obviously, the person that leads the league in on base and slugging is also going to lead the league in OPS. So Frank Robinson hits 342 that season, four points below that of Tommy Davis. 342, 421, 624, 39 home runs, 136 runs batted in, 134 runs scored, 208 hits. To me, that's the MVP of the National League. I would have gone with Frank Robinson in that given vote. And when I get back to social media, which I've given up for Lent 
We've got another week to go. I will put a poll out. Put the season of Maury Wells, the season of Willie Mays, the season of Tommy Davis, Frank Robinson. Who do you go with? And by the way, the guy that ended up finishing sixth in the MVP voting that season was none other than Henry Aaron, who ends up hitting 45 home runs, 128 runs batted in. By the way, hits 323, 390 OPS, 618 slugging percentage, is worth 8.5 in regards to wins above replacement. Frank Robinson there at 8.7. Don Drysdale. Worth 5.9 wins above replacement. 25 and 9, 283 ERA, 41 game starts, 314 innings, 232 strikeouts. Led the league in innings pitched, game starts, strikeouts, and wins. You talk about if, if offense is a little bit down in a given season, you might want to be a little more inclined to give a pitcher consideration. I can't in this particular season. Maury Wells wins. But you can make a case that Willie Mays was better. You can make a case that Tommy Davis was better. You can make a case that Frank Robinson was better. And in this particular season, not ranking them amongst their all-time greats status and what they end up becoming and the symbol for Major League Baseball. I'm not knocking Hank Aaron when I say that he really didn't belong in this discussion for MVP. I really think it's the top four, but I'd, I'd end up ranking it a little different. I'd go Robinson 1, I'd go Mays 2, I'd go Tommy Davis 3, and Wills 4th. And it's no knock on Maury Wills. He could not have had a better baseball season. That was probably, uh, you know, for, for that time. You're talking about stolen bases as they were kind of forgotten about in a game of Major League Baseball. He goes out there and he steals 104. Not only that, but steals 104 out of 117. You're talking about, what, an 88%, 89% success rate in regards to stealing bases? And he has steal over 100? Listen, that probably won him the MVP by itself. And like I said, games played, 165. At-bats, 695. And obviously you know the Dodgers and the Giants were involved in a three-game playoff because they finished in a tie for the National League that year. The Giants ended up winning. And they end up going to the World Series. They play the Yankees. They go to that pivotal seventh game. Hard line drive by Willie McCovey is snagged in the air by Bobby Richardson to end the World Series. But I go back. If I'm doing the MVP vote over again, I'm giving it to Frank Robinson with Willie Mays second, Tommy Davis third, and Maury Wills fourth. Which, by the way, from the way it was ranked, Wills was one, Robinson was fourth. I'm basically just flipping them. Wills is going to four. Robinson is going one. Like I said, when you get back on Twitter at the end of concluding uh, conclusion of Easter, I'll put that up as a, as a poll to get some answers. So another person I wanted to talk about, and I thought it was pretty interesting to bring this up. You know, if you follow the movie 62 with uh, the late Chadwick Boseman playing Jackie Robinson, you know about the long and arduous struggle that he had in his efforts to play Major League Baseball. And some things go in your mind and they kind of bother you. And you know, I've, I've done shows, entire shows about this, about you know, how do you outlaw people from being able to play the same game as you just because of what they look like. And I, and I didn't like that. I, I, I hate thinking about that. 
because it just breaks my heart to think that there's people that just because they look a little different, they were not given a fair enough opportunity. And Jackie Robinson, you know, accomplished that feat and then some, not only as a Major League Baseball player, but as a civil rights activist and everything he stood for. And I think he, he, the struggles that he went to, went through, led to his early death in July of night. I'm sorry, October of 1972, and just a you know an awful, awful end to a great life. A person that basically was the starting point of changing baseballs, uh, kind of ridding them of something that they shouldn't have been doing. You shouldn't have been outlawing anybody to play the sport based off of what they look like. No blacks allowed. I mean, come on. I mean, it sounds unbelievable to say that in the age of 2022. Listen, is everything perfect? Is there uh, examples of racism that you could point out to in any given day if you want to? Yes. You know, you can talk about awful things that have happened over the course of history. But to be in Major League Baseball right now, I'm more proud of the sport than I was prior to 1947. So the manager of the 1947 Brooklyn Dodgers was going to be Leo DeRocher. Leo DeRocher gets suspended for his association with gamblers. You remember, you know, there's still, you know, the, the backlash of Kennesaw Mountain Landis, who was the racist commissioner of Major League Baseball and basically one that kept segregation as it existed throughout the sport really until over his dead body. And when he said there won't be any blacks playing in Major League Baseball, he said over my dead body. And it took the death of Kennesaw Mountain Landis in 1944 for baseball to have a new commissioner and finally a chance to exist that black players can play on the same baseball field as white players. Leo DeRocher, his association with gamblers, keeps him from managing in the 1947 season. A new commissioner, Happy Chandler, suspends DeRocher for the entire season, leaving the Brooklyn Dodgers without a manager. So after some efforts by Branch Rickey, who of course was instrumental in bringing Jackie Robinson into baseball, signing him first for the Montreal Royals, the top farm team club of the Brooklyn Dodgers, and then playing him in 1947 on April the 15th. Jackie Robinson made his Major League debut. Branch Rickey at this point can't find a manager. Some, whether it's a Joe McCarthy or others of that elk, may not have wanted the additional um, struggles or um, pain in the butt, per se, media attention that's involved in playing the first black baseball player since 1884. So some managers said no. Finally, Bert Schotten is talked out of retirement. And I'm going to talk a little bit about Bert Schotten's career um, in a couple minutes. Bert Schotten, at the age of 62, just finishes retiring as a longtime Major League Baseball coach. He was a minor league manager and a major league coach. Um, he ended up managing the Phillies from 1928 to 1933, the Reds for one game in 1934, and was had just decided that he was going to retire from baseball. He wasn't going to wear the uniform again. And, and you know, that's kind of made as a little bit of a focal point in the movie 42. Bert Schotten says, hey, I told my wife I'd never put on the uniform again. You know, Branch Rickey in his discussion with him says, hey, you know, Connie Mack, 
uh, he, he didn't wear a uniform. You could be like Connie Mack. You don't have to put on a uniform again. I just need you to manage this team. He, at first, he was a major league outfielder. Played in a dead ball era 14 years. Managed 11 seasons in the big leagues, like I said. Um, including his time with the Dodgers. Now, almost all of his major league career was in St. Louis. With either the Browns or the Cardinals. The Cardinals is where he gets his connection to Branch Rickey. And you may not know that. Branch Rickey ends up hiring Burt Schotten. How is Burt Schotten on Branch Rickey's radar? Is he just randomly taking, you know, ex-managers, people associated with the game, saying, hey, I'd like to get somebody that could manage this club to just hold this position in a dugout? No. There's a relationship that's developed between Branch Rickey and Burt Schotten going back to the time where Rickey was in charge of the St. Louis Cardinals. Schotten is there. He's a minor league manager. In fact, manages from 1935 to 1941 with the St. Louis Cardinals in their farm club. Now, prior to that, after his career was over as a Major League Baseball player, Schotten was working in the International League with the Cardinals, 1926 and 1927. Led the team in 1927 for the Syracuse Stars of the International League, 102 wins, tied for second in the St. Louis Cardinals Farm Club. That's where he gets the job with the Philadelphia Phillies. Phillies hire him. He's the manager there from 28 to 33. Joins the Reds coaching staff and is an interim manager for one game after Bob O'Farrell is fired and Chuck Dreesen is hired as his replacement. Chuck Dreesen, ironically, is his replacement with the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1951. So that's a little bit of an irony, right? You know, Dreesen was managing the Reds. He ends up, hey buddy, I'm live on television. So we got Nolan Pielli here in the mix. He came to say hello. And Nolan's going to tell you real quick, he's got a baseball game today. He's all dressed for the occasion. Here, come on. This way, this way the camera can get you on. If you look right there, you're right there. So Nolan Pielli is playing a little bit of first base. He's obviously six years old. He's playing Little League Baseball for the first time. You got anything to add? No, Daddy, but um, is it time yet? Because I want to go. So what's pretty cool is Nolan's got a game probably in a couple hours. And he's excited. He wants to play. It's just not his time yet. So he's going to get ready to play. Um, everybody that is watching, wish Nolan the best in his game today. And, you know, he'll be on the show sometime soon. Thanks for coming out. Thank you. So that was Nolan Pielli. Back to talking about Burt Schotten and his run he had as a manager for the St. Louis Cardinals organization. 1935 to 1941, ends up winning a championship twice in the American Association for the Columbus Redbirds was in charge of the Rochester Royals as manager in 1935, went to Columbus from 36 to 41. So during this time, Branch Rickey is still there. Eventually, Branch Rickey leaves to join the Brooklyn Dodgers. And that's where their connection and relationship existed. So there was that bond between Schotten and uh, Rickey, which is not portrayed in a movie. And I think a lot of people did not understand that. Hey, you randomly take a 63-year-old former Major League manager, you put him in the dugout, he's not even wearing a uniform, where's the connection? Well, that's the connection. And of course, he ends up leading the Dodgers to a National League championship in 1947. Leo DeRocher comes back in 1948. And by that time, um, you think of the moral value that Branch Rickey had. 
Uh, I think morals did mean something to him. The fact that Leo DeRocher cheated on his wife is something that really bothered Branch Rickey. And the Dodgers win the pennant in 1947. DeRocher's back. He's reinstated. Dodgers don't get off to a very good start. 70, what, 72 games go on in the 1948 season. And the Giants reach out because they know that Shotton is not currently employed by the Dodgers. Was their manager in DeRocher's place last year. Out of respect, say, listen. We're interested in hiring Burt Schotten as our manager. You know, at that time, I think it was Mel Ott who had, was kind of coming down to the end of his time. The Giants wanted to make a managerial change, and they asked the Dodgers about Burt Schotten. And surprisingly, instead of saying yes to Burt Schotten, um, Ricky decides to make a change himself. He says, "You know what? Why don't you could have Leo DeRocher." Because I'm going to bring Burt Schotten in as the manager again, which ends up happening. He leads the Dodgers to a 15 games over 500 record when they were two games under 500 when DeRocher was in there. And a year later in 1949, the Dodgers win the pennant again. 1950, they finish second place with 89 wins. He is let go. And like I said, Chuck Dreesen, who replaced him. After one game when he was the interim manager in 1934 with the Cincinnati Reds, becomes the full-time Dodgers manager starting in 1951, which, by the way, the Dodgers get back to the World Series in 51. I'm sorry, 50, 51, they end up playing that, that miraculous tiebreaker with the Giants. They finish tied for the top spot in the NL. Giants win the pennant, Bobby Thompson, Ross Hodges, the whole thing. 1952 and 53, the Dodgers win the pennant. 54, Walter Austin replaces Dreesen as the manager of the Dodgers. And then the Brooklyn Dodgers win their lone championship in 1955. But looking back on Burt Schotten, he wasn't thought of in the media. Certainly Dick Young, the longtime journalist of the New York Daily News. And think about it, if you're looking at all-time great sports writers, transcending people throughout the media that have turned the sports into the media frenzy that it is today. It's hard to move on here without giving Dick Young the credit that he deserves. Dick Young might not have been the most beloved person. Um, Dick Young and Howard Cosell did not get along. And I, I spoke about Howard Cosell and how I look up to Howard just for what he's done for the sport. Not sure I would have had the opportunity to say very much to him. He was very particular about the type of people that he would associate with. He'd look at you and, hey, you're not me. You're a dick. Get out of here. He'd kind of shove you aside. And I make that comparison because Maury Wills said to me, you know, the player, the player that he looked up to the most was Ty Cobb. He didn't think Ty Cobb would have had much time to say anything nice or speak to Maury Wills, but he sure as hell looked up to him. And I felt the same way about Howard Cosell, but from a writing standpoint, from an interactive standpoint, and an impact on the world of sports, it's hard to go very far without giving Dick Young the credit that he deserves. You know, lived for 70 years, was with the New York Daily News for a very long time. In the 80s, he left the news to go to the New York Post, covered the Dodgers in the, in the 1940s, and was not a big fan 
of Birchshot. He called him, he had an acronym, K-O-B-S, Kindly Old Birchshot, which obviously was not a, an endearing term. You know, he, his, his thought was that Birchshotten, with all the talent that was there, should have been a little bit more of a dick. He should have been a little bit tougher on the players. And to have that group of talent, which he was right by making a statement, the talent that was there probably could have won a little bit more during that time. Jackie Robinson in his prime. Gil Hodges, Duke Snyder, Roy Campanella. You got Koufax. You got eventually... Uh, Drysdale, then end up coming, you know, a little bit later. And this is a team that really should have won more than it did. The fact that they won the one World Series championship in Brooklyn, maybe they could have won a couple more. But certainly, when they moved to uh, Los Angeles, uh, you know, they ended up getting a little more of their due. Winning a World Series championship in '59 and '63 and '65, getting back there in 1966. Yeah, you know, they didn't have that same kind of results back in 47, 49. And of course, they got there again in 52 and 53. If they won one of those World Series or two of those World Series, I think the whole looking back on that team and how good they were would be a little little bit in a, in a brighter light. And Bert Schotten gets to the World Series in 47 and 49. They don't win either time. And that is a little bit of a reflection of his permanent record. He was a good manager, um, good for the time. Like I said, you brought in the right person that was able to feather or kind of get through the storm that was going on, the media attention with Jackie Robinson, Jackie Robinson going to all these different cities. And like I said, none of this stuff should have been happening, but it was. And Bert Schotten, I don't think, gets enough credit for weathering that storm getting through it, and leading the Dodgers to a pennant anyway. And he could say, hey, if they won the World Series in 47 or if they won the World Series in 49, maybe you look at Burt Schotten as a better manager. But I think he was perfect for that particular situation and the transcending of the sport and getting the Dodgers through that and winning the pennant both of those years, 47-49. So this is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by St. Aloysius Church in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck, located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. We'll be back with you probably Wednesday, another edition of the Passball Show. Like I said, you can check it out on YouTube, on Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Music. Um, just look me up, John Pielli. This is the Passball Show. God bless you, and as always, I'll see you on the other side. Why don't you give it all or a majority of it to the team that wins the freaking World Series? I was going to listen to that, but then I just carried on living my life. Now they come out as the biggest Major League Baseball manager apologist. That'll only make someone work just hard enough not to get fired. Because hitters are going out there saying, I'm either going to hit a home run or I'm going to strike out. And if I don't get a pitch that I feel like I could drive out of the park. I'm not even supposed to be here today. Especially prospect whores and hoarders. Are going to be a little pissed off at me when I say this. I'm a dude playing a dude disguised as another dude. There are only two managers in baseball's Hall of Fame who have losing records. One of them is the iconic Connie Mack, who you could say, in spite of winning five World Series championships as a manager, 
could be in as much as a pioneer. And what side of the spectrum they're on? Were they pitching? Were they batting? If your favorite team was pitching and a ball got inside to hit a batter, there's no way it could have been on purpose. But if you were a fan of the team that was batting and a ball got inside and hit somebody or went behind somebody's head, absolutely 100%, unequivocally, that pitcher was throwing at